0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, If you're a visitor, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy and honor uh, to proclaim the truth of God's word from uh, Job chapter 32 this morning. I would also just say, Um, uh, a welcome to you. Would highly encourage you just to engage with uh, the methods of connecting that Liz put before you. Um, We really do believe uh, that the church is a people to belong to rather than simply an event to attend on a Sunday. And let me just reiterate uh, sort of the importance of the covenant membership class. Uh, It's not like a a hard sell thing where we're going to try to sell you a timeshare at Sojourn. It really is quite simply uh, more like that really awkward first date where uh, we overshare just about who we are and everything that we've kind of got um, under under the table or behind the curtain so that there's nothing hidden um, and you can kind of decide whether or not um, you want to keep uh, hanging around with us. But we only do those quarterly and so that's why uh, I emphasize it. There's only four of them a year um, and so it's coming up August the 27th. That's a Saturday um, and I'd love to to meet you there and be able to have. Uh, maybe a a less formal conversation than the ones that we tend to have uh, in this context. So uh, please do join us for that. With that said, um, we are going to jump into Job this morning. Um, We've kind of been walking uh, at uh, a pretty quick pace uh, through a long book, and so know that this is just a scratch on the surface um, of this great book. But um, we've really just been trying to to sort of answer this, this one question that hangs not only above this book, but really above uh, religion or belief in God in general, which is this, is God just in a world of injustice, right? Is God just in a world of injustice? And so this morning we'll be in chapter 32. Um, Job has just finished his summary defense, his last words of the book, and his three friends... Have exhausted their words. And another friend now speaks up, um, taking one last shot uh, at explaining the events of Job's life. So let's pray and uh, we'll jump into Job 32. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, Again, thank you for the opportunity uh, to gather together with your people underneath uh, the authority and the banner of your word. which, Lord, for us this morning is going to reveal for us the great work that your son Jesus has done. And so, Lord, we ask for uh, clear eyes, open hearts, open ears to hear, Father, what it is that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that your spirit would be here Um, empowering my words and empowering our worship to you so that it might be a fragrant aroma of Christ to you and to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Okay, here we go. So like I said, um, we're introduced to a new friend here, right? A new character, 32 chapters in, um, by the name of Elihu. And so the question, I think, for me, right off the bat is, why does he speak now, right? Why does he speak now? And we get the answer to that in verse 1 when it says, so these three men, that being Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, right, the three friends that we have heard from, these three men ceased to answer Job. So they've gotten to this point in the argument where everyone's just kind of like, all right, I've got nothing left to say Right? They, they don't answer Job anymore. Why? Because he was righteous in his own eyes. They have come at him from every angle, with every possible explanation that they can think of, and Job has still not been convinced that he has been unrighteous. To the contrary, right? Like we saw in his summary defense last week, I, if I have done any of these things, if, if any of these things that I have been accused by, I have actually perpetrated, Well, then go ahead and condemn me. He believes in his righteousness. They are at an impasse. Job refuses to acquiesce. And so this friend, this new friend, Elihu, speaks up, and he speaks up quite angrily. Now, why is that? Now, verse 3 tells us, says, He burned with anger at Job's three friends because they had found no answer although they had declared Job to be in the wrong, right? They found no answer. After 32 chapters, after this back and forth, after this ongoing conversation, not only has Job refused to acquiesce to the, to the fact that he may have been unrighteous, but also these friends have nothing left to give, in spite of the fact that they have declared Job to be in the wrong, right? Right? But why is it that he's waited this long sort of to voice this complaint, right? He's been observing this dialogue between Job and his friends silently up to this point. Well, verse 4 says this, Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. We talked about this last week, that, there, that, that culturally at this time, there's a deference given to those who were of age, those who were older. There was this understanding that with age comes wisdom. And so what Elihu has done up to this point for the past 31 chapters is he's given deference and respect to his elders, refusing to speak before them and always giving them respect The benefit of the doubt they were older and so last week I kind of I I had to sit into this image of a courtroom right to picture Job giving his last summary defense before judge and jury proclaiming his case so eloquently well let's go back to that same image and at this point Elihu has been sitting in the gallery He's been sitting in the gallery hearing the arguments of Job as the defendant, his friends as the plaintiff. But we come to a place in the book, we come to a place in the argument where now the defense and the prosecution, both of them are at rest. And at this point, Elihu from the gallery goes, this is surely not satisfactory. Surely there's more to be said because an adequate answer has not been found and a man has been condemned and yet there, there seems to be no reason for that. You hold him in the wrong and yet you can't seem to explain it. And yet, both Job and his friends are silent. Which leads Elihu to to say this in verse 11, Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. And behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. He's saying, surely arguments can't be over yet. How are we supposed to make a judgment based on what has been given here, set before the court?" Right, Regardless of how convincing they had sounded to one another, these three friends had failed. Their logic had not swayed Job, nor had it before Elihu, a third party, done anything to explain what it was that had taken place with Job, nor with regards to Job's argument before the Lord. Right? The argumentative value of all of these long speeches, 31 chapters worth of them, was zero. They had entirely failed to answer Job's arguments. And so while this is a bit of an aside uh, to, to where we're going, I do want to pause for a minute and, and understand this, because I think it's timely uh, for a church that uh, is our age. It's it's no secret, if you look around the room, that generally speaking, we are a young church. And I think one of the things that I've heard quite regularly um, with, with regards to that is, is sort of this desire for um, more aged people to join us. Why? Well, because they're wise. And here's the thing. I, I think that generally speaking, that, that that's probably true to some degree, right? Much like much of what the friends have to say throughout the book. And yet it is not law, meaning that it does not necessitate. Old age does not necessitate wisdom. It can bring it if it is cultivated. But cultivated from where? It says this in verse 7. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. Verse 8. But, this is his argument to that conventional wisdom, right? Conventional wisdom, the argument to it is this, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Verse 9, it is not the old who are wise, nor the age to understand what is right. Who is it that understands what is right? It is the one who heeds the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. Right? Not too long ago, we were in the Proverbs, and this is, this is why we did Proverbs for a brief moment right before we jumped into Job, because Proverbs is the conventional wisdom that Job gives us a contrary viewpoint of, helps us see it in light of. But in Proverbs, what does it tell us? Chapter 1, verse 7, it's the fear of the Lord that's the, that's the beginning of knowledge. And so I think, brothers and sisters, that this is why Paul looks to a guy like Timothy who is also described as youthful, as young in age, and says, do not be ashamed of that. He says, hold fast. Hold fast to this good testimony. Preach what is good. Preach the Word of God, the whole Word of God, the counsel of God, because that is where wisdom and understanding come from. And so here's the thing. If we want to be wise collectively as a church. We can and should ask for those who are older to come alongside of us, those who are older in the faith. But we should not think for any moment that right now we operate from a place of lack. Because the breath of the Almighty in the Word of God is with us and in us by His Spirit. This This is Paul's Paul speaking to Timothy, every word of God, every scripture is what? Breathed out from God himself. Useful, profitable for teaching, rebuking, right? We have all that we need in terms of wisdom. We just have to mine it from its source, the breath of the Almighty. And so to be old does not necessitate that you are also wise. Wisdom is found from heeding the breath of the Almighty. And so it's with that breath that Elihu will endeavor to speak in the coming chapters, but um, we're not going to go there this morning. So Elihu is angry with these friends. In all of their aged wisdom, in all of their collective life experience, they have failed in their task. But Elihu's not just angry with Job's friends. He's also angry with Job. This is what it says in verse 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. So from the gallery, right? If we're in this courtroom, both arguments have been presented. Elihu is not just upset at the failure of the three friends. He not only sees trouble with the arguments of the prosecution, he also has problems with the arguments of the defense. Seldom is an argument begun, more seldom is an argument carried on in which there are not faults on both sides. Those that seek for truth must not reject what is true and good on either side, nor approve or defend what is wrong. Right, Elihu must be credited here for fairness in calling out both parties. And so what does it say? It says that he is angry with Job because he justified himself rather than God. What does that mean? Well, let's be clear, all right? Let's let's be very clear about what Job is first not saying. I'm sorry, what Elihu is not saying here. He's not denying that Job was a righteous man in the sight of God. He's not denying that. He's not denying that Job was righteous and in the right before God with respect to the argument between him and his friends. He's also not blaming Job for justifying himself from their charges against him. Okay? Very clear. He's not doing any of those things, right? So he's not, um, he's not condemning Job. He's not saying, in the sight of God, you are unrighteous. He's also not saying, you are. Unrighteous because of the way that you are arguing with your friends, and he's also not saying you shouldn't even defend yourself, right? He's saying none of those three things. But what is he saying? Elihu does claim that Job justified himself more than God. It means he spent more time and insisted longer on his own justification than upon the justification of God in the dealings of his providence with him. He was more careful of his own character and his own reputation than he was of the honor of God and the glory of God's justice. He said more of himself than he did for God. You see, though Job doesn't directly charge God with unrighteousness, he does express himself in a way that makes room for that assumption. To hear him complain so heavily about God and at the same time make such a big deal of his own innocence, this made Elihu angry. He's angry at even the mere possibility of Job accusing God of injustice. You see, in Elihu's mind, this is blasphemy utter blasphemy. And so he says that he burned with anger because he justified himself rather than God. Rather than speaking about the the goodness and the glory of God, he's talking about his plight, about his character, defending himself, defending his nature, rather than sort of how he begins the book, which is defending God's character. And so here's really the dilemma of the book and really what what I call the the cul-de-sac of the Old Testament in that you just kind of, you get stuck in it. Here's the dilemma. This is a summary of the book right here. Job suffers, right? If Job sinned and suffers just punishment, right, then God is justified, right? If God sins, I'm sorry, if Job sins, and suffers just punishment then god is justified but job refuses to admit sin that is commensurate with his punishment he refuses to do so therefore god punishes him unjustly what cannot happen what cannot happen is that both god and job be justified This is a tricky situation, and this is essentially what Elihu is alluding to, is he's saying, look, you may have just barely edged up to the line of this reality, but it's close enough. Either God is just or He's not, and the way that you are arguing seems to imply that He is not, which means that you are, and so you have put yourself in the place of judge, and now it is God that's in the defendant's chair. This is what has made Elihu so angry. And this is, honestly, if we, if we put ourselves back in Job's shoes for just a moment, this is, this is the difficulty of Job's situation. Really and truly believing that he is innocent and yet utterly unwilling to directly accuse God of injustice. Injustice. Talk about a rock in a hard place, right? If Job justifies himself, he condemns God. But if he justifies God, he condemns himself, right? Justice, in this case, is a zero-sum game. What one gains, one loses. Job can't have his cake and eat it too in this situation. So what a... What a dilemma. What a place to be. It's no wonder that Job remains silent. It's no wonder that Job longs for the Almighty to respond to him so that the explanation will be made. So that either God will accuse himself for Job or God will enumerate for Job what it was that he's done you understand why Job is, is pleading with the Lord? Will you just answer me? Will you just say something so that we can know what's going on here? Because no matter what I say, no matter what I say, it's going to be wrong. If I justify myself, I've accused God. If I justify God, I've accused myself. And I really and truly believe in my innocence. It's a zero-sum game for Job. And we're going to leave that tension for the rest of the book in that we've still got two more sermons left, and so we'll see how God does in fact respond to Job, and He will elucidate for us what it is that's actually taking place in Job's life and what it is that God purposes to do in and through Job's suffering. But but what I do want to do is I want to look at this dilemma that the Old Testament presents for us and I want us to see how the cross utterly unravels it. Because astonishingly, astonishingly, in the cross, God justifies Himself in the very act of justifying sinners. Sinners. We're going to go to a, a set of verses this morning that if you're familiar with the Bible, it's quite likely that you've read them before. But hopefully we'll read them in a new light this morning. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 3 with me, if you will. I want your eyes to make contact with these words on the page. So I'll give you a moment to get there. Romans chapter 3, that's in the New Testament. So these are all the books written after Jesus came, explaining for us what it is that Jesus has done on our behalf. And in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20 for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what is, what is Paul here in Romans 3 telling us? He's telling us that the righteousness of God cannot be obtained through the law. He's saying it's impossible. It's impossible for us to be justified. Because through the law, in verse 20, comes the knowledge of sin. The moment that we read the law, the moment that we are confronted by the law, we see that we have fallen short of that law. Which is why Paul says, look, it, it can't happen. It won't happen. We will not find justification in the sight of God. We will not bear the righteousness of God in front of Him by our works. It can't happen. There is law, we have broken that law, and for God to be just, if God is a God of justice, then He must punish accordingly, right? Nobody likes it when people who are truly guilty get off, do we? Nobody likes that. We shouldn't expect the same of God. We shouldn't expect him to abdicate his justice. Not if he is to remain just. Not if, he's, if he is to be consistently just. Not if he is to be unchanging as he claims to be unchanging. You see, there's, there's all this sort of discussion and debate about whether or not the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. Because in this one, he's just really judgy and cranky, and in this one, he's all love and flowers. And so I like this one, I don't like this one. But what we're seeing here is the consistency of God's character. In order for God to be just, He must punish according to the law. And this is where the good news begins, verse 21. But now, but now, that right now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what is, what is Paul telling us here? He's saying, look, you cannot be justified by doing works under the law. You can't. It won't happen. It's impossible. But he's saying, but, but here's the thing, the righteousness of God can be attained, So you can't get it this way, but there is a way for it to be obtained. What is that way? Through Jesus Christ. Now see, uh, a lot of people just leave it there and they say, okay, so I have faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're like me, I want to dig a little bit deeper. I want to know what is it that Jesus has done that allows for those who believe in him to call themselves the righteousness of God. Surely he must have done something miraculous, marvelous. Marvelous. Continuing in verse 22, it says this, For there is no distinction. Verse 23, and this is the one that probably many of us have heard or at least read on a probably really bad tract. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Pause right there. There's there's a key word in that text that gives us insight into Christ's work. And it's probably the, the, the word in there that we are least familiar with, right? It's in verse 25, it says this, that Jesus Christ was put forward by God as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation. This word means to satisfy or to appease. You see, what the apostle Paul is saying here is that Jesus' blood, that, that God put forward, the blood of Jesus put forward by God was enough to satisfy or to appease his just wrath against sin. What does that mean? It means that God's holiness, it means that His justice, His justness is not compromised by forgiving sinners because Jesus' payment was satisfactory, was satisfying, was appeasing, was able to soak up all of the deserved wrath of God towards sin. God's just wrath, God's wrath that He bore in His justice found its satisfaction In Jesus, in Jesus' blood more specifically. So God's character remains unchanged. The God of justice from the Old Testament remains. He's just meted out his justice on someone other than you. Now, why would God do this? I'll read Romans three twenty-six. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, what's happening in Job is that God is just and that Job is trying to justify himself. In the cross and in the work of Jesus, God is not only just, but He is the one who justifies us. He is just, and He is justifier. God is just because punishment for sin has been once and for all delivered. It's been poured out upon someone, namely Jesus, His only Son, And God is justifier because the work of Jesus in his perfect life satisfies the righteousness that's required of us. We don't just get a chance to plead our case to God because of Jesus. Jesus is our case before God, he's our exculpatory evidence, he's our precedent. It's because of him. And so, beloved, this morning we, we have the answer to our question. Is God just in a world of injustice? Yes. Yes, He is just. And He is justifier. And He is justifier. Here's what that means for us this morning, right? Every single evil deed, every single evil deed, every single sin, every single Moment worthy of God's justice will meet one of two outcomes. One of two. I don't know when or where this will happen, but I do know how. That deed, those deeds, will either be justly forgiven, justly forgiven. Right so this isn't God ignoring something this isn't God just setting something aside this is God justly forgiving you because payment has been made on your behalf already to accuse you would be double jeopardy So either it will be justly forgiven through the payment tendered by Jesus or and this is the scary one it will be justly punished for the delinquency of the payment tendered by us. Plain and simple. You need justification before a just and holy God. He will not abdicate His justice. He will not abdicate His holiness. He is just. He is holy. He will remain so until eternity's end. And so you need a justifier you can either choose to plead your own defense, you can represent yourself, or you can choose to be represented by the only lawyer who in God's court has ever won a victory. And that's his son. That's his son, Jesus. Friends, this is why hell exists and is a real thing. It exists because those who approach the throne of the most holy God without Christ to mediate, suffer the consequences of their unholiness. God's justice exists. It's there. But He's given us the means to be justified. He's given us the means to be justified. You see, this is our universal problem. That's why it says that all have sinned. Or if you go back just a few verses to verse 10, it says none is righteous, not one. So here's the heart of the Christian faith. Not that we're better or more holy or more worthy of God's love than you, but that Jesus is more holy and more worthy of God's love than than we are. But that He's given us that inheritance. That He's given us the right to claim that for ourselves in spite of the fact that we're sinful. Because his blood is the propitiation put forward by God on our behalf so that he might be just and the justifier. The crux of the Christian faith is that we have fallen short, but in Christ we are found righteous. He advocates for us. He mediates between us and God and secures for us the justification that we so long for, the justification that Job so pleads for. In the cross of Christ, God has shown himself to be just, utterly holy, so that the penalty demanded by the law is not removed, but paid for. But also the justifier. The one who provides the means of justification and who declares people to be right in their standing with himself. This is the heart of the Christian faith this morning, brothers and sisters. This is wisdom and knowledge. This is right understanding. This is the breath of the Almighty poured out upon us. And this is what He would have us to savor this morning. This is the confidence that He would have us to walk in this morning. You see, many of us like to attach something to Jesus. So it's it's Jesus and these things that I do for Him. And the reality is, and the reality is that just like Paul, who says this in, in Philippians, All of our works are like filthy rags before the Lord, but we are still justified. We are still justified. It's just coming from outside of ourselves. It's from a different source. And so we don't need to plead our own case. We can walk through the suffering of this world knowing, knowing without a shadow of a doubt, without the shadow of a doubt that God, yes, is just, and justice will be had at some point and at some time, but that He is also your justifier. And so you can walk in freedom and in peace this morning in the middle of horrible suffering. It is not a paradox to say, this is terrible and God is good. It's not. It's not a paradox. What a joy it is to come this morning and go to the table, the symbol of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, the propitiation set forward by God so that he might be our justice and our justifier. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity again just to gather together, to be amongst the brethren, Father. And brethren, not because we have chosen to become brethren, Father, but brethren because in the work of your Son, Jesus, we have not only been allowed into your presence, but we have been assimilated into your family. And so we belong not only to you, but to one another. And Lord, this morning, where our conscience or where the enemy, the accuser, would accuse us, may we be reminded that you are both just and justifier. That where we have sinned in ways that deserve justly your punishment, you have meted that out upon your Son, Jesus, in our place. And so we stand today together righteous, justified, cleansed, washed white by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, I pray for those of us this morning that, Lord, maybe we don't yet know the justifier. Maybe we're still trying to build up a resume that we think will be good enough for God to allow us into His presence. I pray that you would show that person this morning the utter folly of that line of thinking. Hear Job, a man more righteous than any of us, who yet needs a justifier. And Lord, I pray that this morning would be the first morning that they come to recognize what is at the heart the true nature of the Christian faith, which is not that if we worship God, we are blessed, or that somehow God is this genie we can put into our debt, but that we are utterly in His debt. But that He paid that debt for us in the blood of His Son. Lord, we come to this morning, come to the table, and we rejoice in the confidence that we walk in. That although we are more sinful than we ever dared believe, we are more loved and more accepted in Jesus than we could ever dare hope. And may we respond with loud singing and praise to Your name for this great work that You have done in and through your son Jesus, in whose mighty and wonderful name we pray this morning.